Welcome to episode number 35 of Corner of Hunter and George, Peterborough's art and cultural podcast. You know, I've realized I have to add elements of humor to my podcast. That's probably best for my future, hopefully with someone else eventually. But this this edition of Corner of Hunter and George has no time for humor. Uh, It was back on October 24th. I had Nancy Henderson, an RN, PhD in uh, nursing student at University of Victoria, uh, who was with Peterborough's 360-degree nurse practitioner-led clinic and the Safe Supply Program. Uh, She was a program research and evaluation manager at one time. And that was part one of my three-part series called Drug Toxicity in Peterborough and Understanding, meaning I want to promote an understanding from the people who are involved, the people in the front lines of this issue and what is being done and how we should think about it. No time for any conspiracy bit theories. Well, today I do part two with someone called Carrie Kitely, program manager at Four Counties Addiction service team, which means she is one of those helping run our consumption and treatment services location at 220 Simcoe Street as program manager. I ask her many of the same questions I asked Nancy, but I hope you find them just as insightful. So here is my interview, part two, my three-part series with Carrie Kitely. I know, it's probably about three weeks ago now I spoke with uh, Nancy Henderson Okay. And a couple of weeks, maybe a week after that, I just spoke on the phone a bit with uh, Carol at uh, 360. Mm -hmm. And uh, so you're kind of another one, I guess, just uh, kind of all about the same issues. But um, great, great. Yeah. So these first couple of questions may seem really basic, but they come from uh, thinking that there's a lot of misunderstandings in the public about some of these things. So um as you are um i didn't uh, i had it written down but what what is your exact position with cts at the moment uh, yeah i'm the program manager at the cts right now that wasn't really the question but is it um my first one was going to be is it safe to assume that every clientele that comes to cts has had a toxic exposure to drugs in their past uh, that's a pretty safe assumption. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, our service users, uh, very rarely do we have someone come through the doors that hasn't been using injection drugs uh, before. Uh, so the likelihood that folks have had an exposure and overdose in the last, say, three to six months is quite high. Okay. And what are what uh, do you find are the prevailing drugs used that they've been exposed to? Like not with um, you, but outside. Yeah, I think our stats to date put us at about forty-three percent fentanyl mm-hmm. uh, in terms of what people are using here. Forty-three percent fentanyl, and then like you know, twelve, ten to twelve percent crystal meth, ten to twelve uh, percent uh, cocaine, and then the the rest is a bit of a mix. So other opiates or other opiates mixed with uh, either crystal meth or, or fentanyl. So. Um, that that that's a ballpark. I'd have to pull the exact numbers to to know, but that's those were our stats up until maybe the end of October. Right, and why? I guess one thing. I one reason I'm asking that um, is I still think when people hear see headlines like uh, opioid epidemic, they still think of it in an oxycontin kind of way, which mm-hmm. I've heard people who know a lot more than I do say that ended around 2010. 
Yeah. So when they delisted um, OxyContin and moved to OxyNeo, I don't remember. I don't know if you mm-hmm. remember that kind of shift. Sort of, yes. And then, um, sorry, I'm just rustling around for my, yeah. my uh, charger. Um, uh, so they moved to OxyNeo. And so OxyNeo was intended to be uh, less... Um, like you were less able to break it down in order to inject or smoke it. So that was the first strategy around reducing um, kind of the diversion of OxyContin. And then they also put some prescribing guidelines in place that were really um, harshly um, cracking down on physicians who were prescribing opiates and the, the guidelines were quite strict. And so a lot of physicians became pretty hesitant to prescribe any opiate, let alone, um, any in the oxy series. Mm -hmm. Um, and from there fentanyl really became something that was prescribed widely. Um, specifically fentanyl patches. So much like a nicotine patch, it was uh, adhered to your skin and it would slow release fentanyl over time for pain management. Um, really effective pain management, uh, typically used in longer, ca- like long-term care settings, um, mm-hmm. but began to be prescribed uh, a bit more wildly as a, widely as a pain management strategy. And so that was kind of the introduction to the market. People began to um, use their uh, fentanyl patches differently, or there was a, a lot of diversion of fentanyl patches. And then there was a shift in prescribing there. So we're kind of always shifting as a response to um, what's happening in, in the market. And uh, and then fent- fentanyl analogs became uh, quite popular. So they began emerging. So that's like synthetically uh, uh made fentanyls, mm-hmm. uh, other chemicals mimicking uh, what a typical fentanyl um, uh, formula would be. And that's when things shifted a little bit towards fentanyl being the the opiate of choice from a, a street drug level because there began to be quite a big market. Right, right. And we will get it. I, I do want to ask things uh, regarding synthetic, it being a synthetic drug later, but um do you have sort of a theory of your own or is there agreed upon professional understanding of where the toxicity comes from? Is it sort of, I think Nancy said, it's basically the effect of it being kind of, there's still being a prohibition on the drugs. So it's similar to, you know, what we had in the twenties and thirties with alcohol. Absolutely. Like I, I think there's like some capitalism <laughs> happening mm-hmm. yeah. uh, as well as prohibition. Um, so I think two things happen. Um, any kind of market seeks to make money, right? So mm-hmm. you have a pure substance and you can make it go further. So you can sell it to more people have, um, more, uh, profit, then you'll do that. Right. So we like, you know, stretch out a recipe so that you can feed more people. It's the same, uh, kind of theory. So, uh, when we're talking about, uh, drug trafficking or selling drugs, um, those are business people, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, folks who are selling drugs, trafficking drugs are business people. So they're looking, how do we get the most for uh, most money out of our investment? And so um, one of those pieces is adding things to the supply. So cutting it with different agents, uh, adding things to the supply so that it goes further. And we saw a fairly significant shift when COVID happened and the border got shut down and transportation was such an issue. Um, mm-hmm. It was hard to get drugs over the border, which means that you have to use your supply and stretch it as far as you can in order to maximize your profit. And so we saw like a huge rise in additives, I would say, to fentanyl. Um, so that that's one piece that like kind of um, uh, consumerist kind of seeking out um, a, a bigger uh, return on an investment. Um, but the other piece is it's unregulated, right? So, uh, drugs are illegal, fentanyl specifically opiates, uh, from a street supply standpoint are illegal. Um, so there's no way to, uh, regulate what's in them or, um, to regulate how the supply is, is made. Um, so that's one piece for sure. Um, and I think because it's, uh, we're, we're pushing everyone to an illegal supply by really cracking down on prescribing guidelines and other options for pain management, we're pushing people towards an expensive and a street level supply. And that's where the toxic uh, additives come in. Okay. So are you saying sort of in effect, one of the reasons is kind of 
not so much malicious intent, but kind of uh, like a a cost management and just being able to get out as much supply at sort of the cheapest cost, kind of like you said, in a business sense. Well, I don't know if it's not malicious. Uh, I think that it's uh, like, I, I try not to add value, a positive or negative value right. to uh, people who are, are dealing drugs, right? Mm-hmm. Um, from a, a legality standpoint, it's illegal. Um, we can question the ethics of it and we can be frustrated and angry at the effect that it's having in our communities for sure people are dying unnecessarily but because we have policy that makes it illegal and we don't have a safe supply so an avenue to provide pharmaceutical grade tested regulated substances then that is naturally going to become a a way to make money right Uh, and it happens in other markets with less of an ethical moral framework uh attached to it. So I think that it's just a normal response. Um, I, uh, but I do think that if we had a regulated, uh, easy to access and afford supply, uh, we would see a significant change in the number of deaths that we're currently dealing with. Okay. And when you're dealing with members of uh, the public or people you're not directly dealing with every day at CTS, what, what do you find are some of the main misconceptions you have to sort of explain about fentanyl that people may have. Well, there's a few misconceptions that pop up right away when we're talking about the CTS. Uh, One of the key things that people, general public folks assume is that we're providing drugs. So mm-hmm. there's a sense that if you show up at the, the CTS, you can get drugs and then get high. And we don't provide drugs. Pre- people procure their substance elsewhere and then um, bring it to the CTS to use it. So that's one misconception. The second misconception is this discomfort with um, providing a safe space or providing any space, funded space, for people to use illegal drugs. Like There's a lot of discomfort there. And so talking about the idea and philosophy of harm reduction is largely the explaining that I do. So um, it's helping to land people in the idea that people are dying, that harm reduction is actually a health response. Um, and providing a space where people can use indoors is actually a a safety precaution for both the individual who's using substances and the community as a whole, right? Safety from an overdose and death standpoint, but also from um, the perspective of the draw on the system, calls to 911, et cetera. If we can provide space and response here, that means the ambulance call for an overdose there's there's more availability for an ambulance to respond to a different call. So there's there's a lot happening. There's so much. Um, there's so uh, many moral responses to drug use, especially Ill- illegal drug use uh, in the general public. That you're often kind of fighting against that framework that people have, um, and and trying to reorientate to a compassionate kind of medical response framework because it's easier to understand. Um, and it's easier to align with, right? If this is a health treatment um, versus um, enabling substance use. Right. No, I, I feel that's kind of like a never ending kind of thing with uh, some of it's just uh, people who don't come across such misfortune have trouble sort of digesting both um, that people are dying from drugs, like you said, and also even another topic we're going to do later like homelessness like there's it's kind of like an individual air rather than a societal kind of like a how we've fallen short in other areas and this has kind of caused caused it for a lot of people yeah and to be honest um like my favorite bumper sticker in town right now is the one that says i narcan your honor student mm-hmm. um as we do have the the kind of perception that fentanyl use, that drug use is uh, largely a homeless issue. So -hmm. people who are marginalized, who don't have a lot of money, who don't have housing perhaps, but the reality is is that um, opiate overdose specifically has affected our society across economic demographics. So Mm -hmm. it's, it's an interesting assumption. And I think that from a humanity standpoint allows us to other folks, right? Like if we can make the problem as far away from us and what we look like 
as possible, then it's easier to like not have to pay attention to it because those aren't my people. But the reality is, is that we see people of all demographics. Our, our overdose team here that does a lot of support in community goes to where people are at. They, you know, go to the suburbs. They mm-hmm. uh, connect with people who have had an overdose who are struggling with opiate use that aren't just homeless or look like I do, right? Like have a house, have a job, are struggling with a, a very addictive sub- substance and an uh, unstable supply uh, across demographics. So I think there's some of that as well. There's a lot of stigma, right? Yes. Yeah. Um yeah, I think your point about they are not us, this is, you know, I don't want to be part of that is kind of, um, I think that still reigns true for a lot of people. I've I've had to hear a lot of garbage the last year or two, how they're all from Toronto and that sort of thing. Like they just aren't people who could have grown up around here sort of thing. Um, that, yeah, that and you know what, I remember very clearly early in the opiate crisis, like I've been kind of connected to this work for quite some time, like, you know, those early 2000s or 2012, 2014, where we were talking about uh, OxyContin. And um, I remember listening to this young woman speak at a an education thing that I went to. And uh, at 16, she had her wisdom teeth removed. She was prescribed OxyContin. It really worked. She had an like an abscess or, or whatever happened, uh, infection, a lot of pain was prescribed OxyContin, 100 pills. When she went through them, she still had pain. She was prescribed 100 more. And then by the time she got through those 200 pills, she was pretty hooked on uh, the OxyContin for a number of reasons. Um, But it was interesting because the way that she introduced herself was, you know, I lived in the suburbs of Toronto. I had two parents who were like, you know, in a solid relationship, loving, kind, went to high school, dot, dot, dot. Right. And mm-hmm. so she, she had gone through some significant work to uh, reduce her, her opiate use and had been through quite a bit by the time she was presenting to us. And I, I think that we have to keep telling those stories, not just telling stories of folks who are homeless or folks who are marginalized to um, struggle with substance use, but folks who uh, are middle-class folks who, uh, you know, have money and can, can fund their own, um, their own uh, addiction or their own substance use struggle. I think that that's the piece that we, you and I can do to mm-hmm. talk about how how pervasive it is. Right. So um, so when you have a clientele come to CTS, um, yeah, what sort of is the process that you go through? Like what, what services are you offering them? That's a great question. So um, at 220 Simcoe Street, um, mm-hmm. we have three services that run from this building. So we have Parnes Harm Reduction uh, Distribution Program. So they uh, distribute uh, safer drug use equipment. Uh, they distribute personal um, needs uh, items. They distribute food when they have it. They have a lot of kind of connections to hep C and HIV testing, uh, et cetera. So that program runs out of our building. We also have the MSORT team, who is a mobile, it's MSORT stands for Mobile Supports Overdose Resource Team. And so they uh, get referrals directly from paramedics and other community agencies uh, for folks who have experienced an overdose and need some support, some support afterwards. So they'll go out and, and meet with people where they're at in their driveway, at their house, in an office, at the library, wherever they need to, to meet them to help them kind of make connections for the next steps. Uh, and then the CTS. So when someone comes through the door, uh, you're like, hey, who like who, who are you here to see? Um, and if folks want to use the CTS, so they've brought in some substances and, and want to consume them, um, we have a, a fairly short intake process. Um, because there's so much a stigma attached to substance use, uh, people are pretty um, hesitant to share their name and mm-hmm. Who have some kind of record of where they've been, how many times, specifically around use. So um, we're, we have a pretty low threshold. Um, we have a unique identifier uh, for every individual who comes through the door. We don't require that you show ID or a health card or even tell us your real name if you don't want to. Um, but we have a, a unique kind of 
unidentifiable a code for every person. And so they come through the door, they give us their code. We ask them a few short questions. So if they've been here before, our questions are like three or four. When's the last time you used? What did you use? Did you OD? And what are you here to use today? And so once we have that information, we have a bit like the reason why we ask about when you used last, because it gives us information about where their tolerance might be at. It also gives us information about whether what they're using now and whether that could compound a response in their body. Um, And if they've had an overdose recently, that helps us to understand tolerance and what's going on in their body. Um, Then we assign people to a booth. And we have three booths where people can uh, prepare and consume their drugs. And uh, we kind of uh, leave the service user to uh, their process. Um, We do have a medic on site uh, all 12 hours a day that we're open. And we have uh, two or three harm reduction workers on site. So um, after someone consumes their drugs, uh, we can uh, watch for what response happens in their body and be able to respond uh, appropriately to whatever that might look like. Mm-hmm. Um, our harm reduction workers are excellent. Like they're the most knowledgeable folks in town around um, safe injection practices and often are giving uh, some tips to folks who are here around uh, safe injection practices, wound care, um, you know, how to find a vein, how to to, to practice vein health, um, looking at like uh, co-occurring health issues and stuff and making sure they get uh, referrals to, to other services, whether that be services in the building or services outside of the building. We also have a nurse here three afternoons a week um, who can meet with people around uh, their health needs and do things like wound care and, and uh, like disease management and uh, testing and making links to primary care. So there's, there's kind of a lot happening when someone comes in to to use drugs and uh we try and build relationships with folks Uh, it's pretty low-key here it's very casual um there's a lot of community building that happens on the daily and and uh, we're just building connections with folks right so is it safe to say then it's low barrier and also you're trying to also do provide for the whole person like not just one element Ideally, ideally, yes. Mm -hmm. And to be honest, a lot of our service users have had negative um, experiences in the healthcare system, in the social services Mm -hmm. system, so are pretty um, resistant or or hesitant about accessing services. So we do our best to um, make warm connections and bring services here. Um, because it's really helpful to have someone walk alongside you when you have to go to the hospital or walk alongside you when you're going up the street to the RAM clinic, the rapid access addiction medicine clinic. So we do a lot of that kind of uh, relationship building and warm handoffs and introducing and, and making things as accessible as possible. Right. Well, yes, uh, that's, that's great in a lot of ways. Cause speaking as someone who worked uh, right near you not last year i don't currently but last year 21 22 winter at the library where naturally a lot of people are going to be in the washroom and um these you know cts wasn't available yet it was uh it's it was just um it was, it was it's quite good that that's that you have that in place and it's just uh you know that element where you're saying they don't often want to talk about it or admit it or say their name you certainly saw that prevailing even at the library you know Uh, yeah and to be honest like the library staff needs uh, big credit for the work that they've done as almost as a an unsanctioned or unofficial uh, CTS or overdose prevention site right because Mm -hmm. So many, like it was the only public service that that was available when we were in the middle of shutdown, right? Like so many services closed their doors and the library was still open and they were seeing so many folks just needing place to warm up, right? So they certainly had uh, a lot of weight in this to carry. So uh, they appreciate us. We appreciate them. We try and support uh, in and around their building as much as we can. Yeah, not to get too far off topic, but I was there the one day last winter when we had that terrible storm. I forget it was January or February and uh, the library was closed, but we kept the entrance open and the washroom downstairs. So I was there all day and there was probably about 
in and out about 40 people there just really to have warmth and use the washroom kind of thing yeah 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 it's a real thing i mean yeah. we can all relate to the idea of like needing to go to the washroom and not being yeah. able to find a washroom right there's a lot yeah. of criticism about uh like downtown homelessness or like mm -hmm. a certain perception but when you don't have options it's it's really difficult to uh to get by right and right. COVID really shut down all of the options. Um, so currently, uh, how many active clients do you now have? At, uh, uh, just at just over 200. 200? Okay, because I think yeah. I saw in one newspaper article, but this is from a month or two ago, it was 100 and something. So it's gone up a bit since then. Yeah. Yeah, yeah we have just over 200 um, uh, service users. And... Um, our most recent number of uh, visits is somewhere around just over 3,500 visits mm. uh, since we opened and probably uh, like maybe 3,100 consumptions. So we record people uh, when they come through. If they come in from using somewhere else and need to recover in our post-consumption room, we allow that. Um uh, if someone has had an overdose in the area and EMS responds and they don't want to go to hospital, they're often encouraged to come to us. So we'll allow them to recover in our in our post-consumption room uh, so they can be monitored. Uh, also, we so we record kind of who comes through. We also record when that visit uh, results in uh, consumption. So. Right. And is, are those numbers like higher than you thought it would be when you started this or is that you, you had no idea maybe? Well, I think that the 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 experience of other CTSs in Ontario was a slower start. So mm -hmm. I think we were kind of warned that the first three months would be slow and to not expect a lot of visitors. I was chatting with a medic from um, Kingston and he was saying that they saw one visitor a day for the longest time. Okay. And then slowly started to build. Um, but we didn't have that experience. Um, and I think that's because I don't think the situation in Peterborough is any different from any other Canadian city, to be honest. Um, uh, even though Peterborough is special, I think we're experiencing something pretty similar to other Canadian cities. Um, but the work that was done here from Parn and through the MSORT team just out of this building built some connection, natural connection with the community. And there was a lot of trust here. Um, as well as the OPS tent that um, runs on an mm -hmm. ad hoc way by volunteer. They have been incredible at building bridges to the CTS um, and encouraging people to, to um, use this service. So I think that that is what's different about Peterborough. There was a lot of groundwork laid before we opened our do doors on June 13th. Right. And it's also kind of the ideal location in a way. It's right in yeah. the middle of it there. I don't know if yeah. that's the case everywhere in Ontario, but, um, and just one other point, um, is it safe to say, cause I just, another thing I witnessed a year ago is like, there'd be a, you know, sometimes, uh, we'd be calling the paramedics five or six times a day. They would barely get down the street and they'd be called back again, not necessarily to us, but like, you know, they, they, mm -hmm. the numbers sometimes they were giving me of how many calls they would get a day. But anyway, you've, is it fair to say you've prevented some of that? from happening. Absolutely. Right. Yeah. When somebody uses at the CTS, because we can watch the response immediately in their body, we can respond right away. So mm -hmm. that means if someone's breathing is reduced, we can say, you know, hey, Tim, you doing okay? Um, and it kind of that verbal stimulation causes the respiratory system to, to kind of restart a little bit. Um, or if somebody goes down and their respiration rate goes below 10, we know what to do in that moment. We have oxygen on site. We have Narcan on site. We have um, little pulse oximeters that we can pop onto people's fingertips to monitor um, their pulse and the uh, percentage percentage of oxygen in their blood. So, like it's it's like a an instant response, right? So in the community. 15 minutes passes, somebody walks by and says, oh, that person is not doing so well. Hey, are you okay? No response. They call 911. And so ambulance has to come and they're responding to an overdose that happened 15, 20 minutes ago and is pretty deep, right? So mm -hmm. we, because we can respond immediately, there's no like 
the time doesn't pass. We can prompt someone to breathe. They can still uh, experience the high that they were after, but they can then do that in a safe space where they're being monitored. So when you think about it, like all 3000 and some visits that we've had, um, even if half of those could have been um, overdose calls uh, in the community, that's like, you know, 1500 overdose calls that didn't happen. So um, it's hard, it's hard to know, like we know how many overdoses we respond to, but we, it's hard to know just the, the small pieces that we do, right? Like the, Hey, Tim, you doing okay. Uh, take a breath for me there. Uh, like monitoring people, you know, taking mm -hmm. care of them is important stuff. Yes. Okay. Well, that's, that's quite impressive, even though that those numbers now, another element of yourself is, um, forgive me if I have a, uh, position wrong, but are you still advisor to the Canadian Alliance to end homelessness? I'm no longer working with the Canadian Alliance. That was kind of pre. Okay. All right. Yeah. I was going to say if you're doing both at the same time, but anyway, it wasn't that long ago you were still doing like a, a count of a homeless population in Peterborough mm -hmm. as part of this, I think the federal program is called point in time, something like that. Yeah. Yeah. So every two years, the federal government mandates, uh, social service departments uh, who receive uh, reaching home funding to do a homelessness count. And uh, typically in Peterborough, the United Way takes the lead on that. So I was supporting the United Way to do those counts mm -hmm. um, or that count. And we counted, I think, in December, December 7th of uh, 2021. And I, I think, as I'm sure you've read, the big startling numbers were the dramatic increase in people living outdoors. So we certainly see that played out at our doorstep as well. Right. And it's for a federal program like is the definition of homelessness meaning just simply no fixed address or is it a little more complicated than that well i they do include in their definition of homeless so folks who are living outdoors or in places mm -hmm. that are unfit for human habitation they include folks who are living in shelter um, whether that be uh, intimate partner violence shelter or uh, homeless emergency shelter or any kind of temporary setup for uh, immigrants or refugees or um, natural disaster shelters. So they they include that. Uh, they also include uh, folks who are um, couch surfing and don't have a permanent address. Um, people who live in encampments, uh, living outdoors, living in their cars, et cetera. So it's pretty broad. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that the the hard part about doing a count during COVID, like we were in the middle of the Omicron yeah. uh, surge, so everything was shut down, was finding people, right? So the fact that we were able to count uh, just around 200 people uh, was remarkable. And the, the teams that were out counting folks were all like outreach teams that have built relationships with folks experiencing homelessness over the last few years. So uh we were super grateful to them for the work that they did to to make that count as robust as possible. Okay, and it is besides the COVID restrictions, is also the counting process more difficult than some may think because of what you're you were saying about people not uh, wanting to admit they are um, are addicted on drugs is also that like a process of shame and admitting you're homeless kind of thing. Yeah. And to be honest, Tim, I think that there's two things there. Like mm -hmm. right now it's, we've criminalized homelessness, right? So there's like yes. that, that piece around shame because of income or marginalization mm -hmm. or stigma associated with homelessness. But there's also the piece that we have a bylaw locally that doesn't allow people to tent, right? Mm -hmm. So people are moved along daily um encampments or small uh like even single tents are are dismantled uh, all the time mm -hmm. so uh people don't want to tell you where they're tenting anymore mm -hmm. like we have clients who we know are living outdoors and they won't disclose where they're tenting because they don't want to be found because they know that their 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 uh spot will be dismantled so i think there's a both end there when we're mm -hmm. talking about is the number accurate the 48 people we counted outside is that accurate oh that's we're just scratching the surface because those are on, the only people we could find Versus the people who are like just a tiny bit outside the downtown core who are choosing to be hidden, who are who know that to keep their stuff and to stay safe, they have to be a little bit further uh, away and non-visible. So 
there, there's a lot to be said for for the impact of that bylaw and how uh, aggressively it's been enforced locally. Yeah, right. I know I was just about an hour and a half ago, I was just uh, driving by Victoria Park. I think I saw three or four tents, but you have to, again, wonder, it could be any time that, you know, police arrive and that's stopped sort of thing. And I, I if I'm recalling correctly from the election, it, I there was a, probably about half of them that said they, you know, they want to continue this law enforcement of not that not allowing any any tents on the, on the park. Um, so uh, I think many, if not most, Peterborough residents would agree that two of our biggest issues are drug toxicity pandemic and our homeless population. And um, not you don't have to say any names, but did you hear anything promising at all from our recent municipal election on these topics or or not really? Certainly. You know what? I, I think that every time we have a different perspective on council, that's a good thing. Mm-hmm. So we have folks who are standing up saying we need to do something different for our most marginalized. That's hopeful. Um, I think that it's really difficult to be in municipal government right now. Uh, I certainly mm-hmm. don't envy the decision makers. It, we're trying to um, stretch budgets that are incredibly stretched already uh, with a growing population of folks who are struggling. So um, is there hope? Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. Is is there a, a need to think creatively and kind of step outside the bureaucracy to to really maximize um, the best strategy possible with the resources that we have? Yes. Do we have the people locally to design those strategies? Yes. So I think that like I just have to keep saying that to myself. Um, and and pushing as much as I can from my, the position that I have professionally and from my personal uh, standpoint to to look for and push for push, push decision makers for creative pragmatic solutions. Well, I'll say one thing. I think Peterborough has that a lot of places, for example, say Coburg or uh, other nearby locations, uh, probably Belleville too. Uh, they have a lot, we have a lot of agencies and people who are well embedded into these issues before it happened and already knew what the solutions were and already had their plans in place. I think there's a lot of places that maybe are slightly smaller than Peterborough, but not that much, who don't really, don't have, didn't have that much set up for this or not as much as Peterborough anyway. So Yeah, and to be honest, I, I think that where Peterborough excels is with collaboration. So there's often a lot of criticism about community agencies or this person doesn't collaborate with that person. But on the grand scheme of things, we have a lot of interagency work that's happening on any given issue. And that is unique. Um, I I think we all kind of get frustrated with one another, frustrated with the bureaucracy or frustrated with what's not happening. But there is a really strong core of people and organizations who are willing to do hard work for people who have less. And um, I I, I do think that is, I mean, Margaret Mead said that like it's possible, Mm -hmm. like small groups of people working working together are the only possibility for change, right? And I think that that, that's, I, I don't know, I'm a pretty hopeful person. I think that that's uh, what we have to believe in, in a lot of ways. Yeah, okay. Well, yeah, so that's, uh, that, I think that's a good attitude to carry. I think, uh, um, are there, so not just, it doesn't have to be municipal, but any levels of government, are there any sort of necessary policies that you think should come? Like the one that I think of is, um, like, you know, no inhaling allowed on your grounds at CTS. That's, you know, the, which is brought on Tweak Easy, which is a great thing, but uh, that's not an ideal solution. Yeah. I mean, if you're paying attention to the Board of Health meeting last night, there was a lot of conversation about inhalation and advocacy for inhalation, pushing the province to allow inhalation at, at mm-hmm. consumption and treatment sites. Um, mostly because probably six to one folks who are using, uh, cocaine, uh, fentanyl, or crystal meth are inhaling versus injecting. So we have an injection service, really big move, really important. But if at six to one, we're missing like a huge portion of the folks who are at risk. 
um, and need options. Uh, so inhalation services are key. And I think that's a provincial legislative change that needs to happen and a decision that needs to happen from a Ministry of Health standpoint to allow that. Decisions take time, right? Uh, like injection, funded injection services in, in Ontario is just expanding um, in the last few years. So uh, we have to keep pushing and advocating for more change, more expansion. So that's key. Uh, and the other two things I would say, safe supply. So really figuring out how we regulate a supply and get it to the populations that need it. Uh, BC is always a decade ahead of us and are doing some really cool things around safe supply and, and uh, providing uh, options for people, uh, specifically in a safe supply environment. And the third piece I would say is housing. Uh, yes. What we see time and time again is without stable housing, it's really hard to make any moves on health, right? Whether that's your physical health, whether that's your mental health, whether that's substance use related, without a stable place to do that, it's really difficult. So those would be my three wishes if you were good, going to grant me wishes. Okay. Uh, yes. I mean, we have now Ontario's, I forget the exact name of it, but they're one and a half million uh, homes built by 2029 plan, but which I don't actually think involves Peterborough necessarily, but um yeah, no, I guess we'll see what happens. Um, yeah, and we have to invest across the spectrum. I think sometimes yeah. the perspective is let's build homes and then the trickle-down effect will occur. But yes. I think we passed the trickle-down effect getting to folks who are living outdoors, right? Because there's such a big need for housing that the trickle-down effect is only trickling down so far. And so we really need to invest in affordable housing specifically for people who uh, have experienced homelessness, are living homelessness right now um so that we have housing options for folks uh, who are most marginalized it's going to be a cold winter yes well that's the immediate need obviously um just about what i was saying just my own th thinking um yeah if we're going to leave it to real estate developers to be providing uh affordable housing at their own discretion i i think we may end up disappointed on that issue but anyway um now sorry if this is an obvious question but i guess i just i wonder in a way is 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 220 simcoe meant as a permanent location um well it's the cts yeah yes and um, uh, one of the biggest hurdles for us when we were trying to develop the CTS was finding space and a mm -hmm. landlord was willing to have us. Um, it's a big ask for a landlord to have a safe injection site in your building. Right. Uh, our landlord's incredible, um, supportive of the issue, understands the issue, is really pragmatic, uh, certainly is business minded. So um, mm -hmm. I don't think that they're taking any risks that are are uh, extravagant, um, but certainly are going outside of what's expected of the average downtown business person. Um, so there's that. So the CTS is well located with a landlord that's supportive. Um, should we need to expand and need a bigger space, uh, we certainly would uh, be open to suggestions. I know there's some mm -hmm. some conversation locally that uh, the CTS isn't open to suggestions, but the bottom line is, is we want to provide safe services for our client population and will um, move to where that population is should the space be available. Um, so I, I think that... Uh, 220 Simcoe is as permanent as we can be right now. Um, and uh, we'll keep growing and expanding and responding to the the, the population's needs as as it changes. Right. Well, you were you were mentioning BC before. Are there any places in Ontario that you look at as exemplary models for how their policies or procedures have helped um uh people affected by the drug pandemic? Well, I think any community who's doing something creative around housing. So Toronto has done some really cool stuff around modular housing that mm -hmm. has allowed them to build quick, build small, build um, strong. So like there's some really interesting stuff coming out of BC housing as well that uh, is showing that modular housing, purpose-built uh, modular housing is, is really effective from a physical environment standpoint. Um, co-located with services like there's some stuff that's happening that we should be paying attention to specifically coming out of BC housing 
Um, they have been doing some really interesting work with land dedicated for municipalities to BC housing in order to be developed for certain populations. So that's stuff that we should be paying attention to. Um, when we look locally across Ontario, um, that Toronto piece around modular housing is something to pay attention to. Some of the the like sanctioned tenting or sleeping shed um, ideas that are emerging are are a temporary solution, but it, but getting people um, at least uh, indoors and safe. Um, from a CTS perspective, Casey House in Toronto is really pushing the boundaries around inhalation and and trying to legitimize inhalation in their service. So we're watching that. Um, when we looked to our, you know, southeast to our friends in Kingston, uh, they've co-located their CTS with uh, Shelter. Um, so they have an integrated care hub that uh, includes uh, drop-in space for folks living outdoors and Shelter. And that is uh, challenging, I'm sure, but also really meeting a unique need uh, for a population that uh, doesn't have uh, many other options. So I mean, there's examples of really cool stuff all over the place uh, that I think that we're paying attention to, reading the literature about, um, and and definitely trying to inform our decision makers here with that kind of progress. Right. And there's uh, KW's uh, Kitchener-Waterloo's, what they did with uh, sort of building a housing community out of um, those homes. And I was uh, told that they'd like there's a nursing care are on site and things like that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they have an incredible uh, response. Like one thing that I appreciate about KW's uh, uh, tiny sleeping sheds. Yeah tiny, yeah, tiny homes, I should say. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And, and we have to be clear, right? When we say tiny homes, I think we imagine the Instagram tiny home that we see. But uh, the, the tiny home communities, specifically as a response to homelessness, are, are more like sleeping sheds. It does give yes. someone a space that's sheltered, uh, indoors, can be heated. Um, mm -hmm. But it's not a home and it's, it's not permanent. So I, they're doing like really great work. And they, I heard um, a report from Kitchener Waterloo where they were talking, they're tracking the number of visits uh, and it's actually astounding how many service providers are providing support. Uh, so that's exciting. Um, and, but again, non-permanent, right? So housing is a basic need. We have established in Canada, that's a human right. Um, but we're still not able to enact that as a human right across populations. So I think that's where we start. Um, the stuff that KW is doing is temporary. They're pushing boundaries in in really cool ways and, and they deserve all the, the kudos. Um, mm -hmm. But like you said, they are doing the best that they can with providing health and social supports to that community. Right. But if you talk to any of them, they're like, we, the, we need affordable, stable, permanent housing. Well, yes, yes. Uh, uh, it's It's it maybe takes care of immediate issues, but not it's not meant as a solution. Mm -hmm. um, I've heard you say that you're really, when it comes to this work, you're really big on like there being an individualized service plan for each uh, client. And so just maybe you can explain what that means exactly. I mean, I get what the words are, but I don't know exactly what the process of well, that is. You know, I think it's, there's this like two stream thing that we have to build for people. Um, mm -hmm. We have to understand what good care looks like from a big picture um, standpoint, but we have to remember every person that comes through the door as an individual. So while we have big processes, standardized tools, um, uh, pathways to whatever it might be, mental health services, uh, primary care, housing, we also have to remember that each individual uh, comes through the door with something unique. Um, so we do a we do a lot of work to make sure that we're meeting people where they're at, where they individually are at, so that we can then um, figure out what the pathway is for them. Um, the big picture thinker, like the systems thinker in me is like, let's fix systems, but we have mm -hmm. to figure out how to fix systems at the same time that we're giving individualized compassionate care to each person that comes through our door as a public service sector, health sector. So, um, and would you say in a big systems thinker kind of way that, um, it would be ideal for this for these issues that we're talking about, that the police's role is reduced or 
plays a different part than it has traditionally? Yes, and like I think public okay. safety is really important. Mm -hmm. um, I think we're lucky locally that police are willing to come to the table. Um, so uh, do I think that drugs should be decriminalized? I think that's part of, of a solution. Um, do I think that we should find different ways to collaborate with police for solutions? Uh, yes. So uh, if we had the services that we needed locally um, to respond to things like homelessness, to things like substance use, to things like um, uh, mental health, like if we had enough, we would have less of a need for police. So uh, like it, it's hard to say less police without building up that base of supports um because from a public safety standpoint there is a function right um so i always find that question hard to answer okay well i'll go down one path with that like i think one thing we haven't really discussed but does come along often with both homelessness and um uh any toxic drug use is mental health either as a beforehand thing or as a result of, or both or what, you know, whatever. Um, and, you know, we had back in 2020, not just in the U S but Canada, we had all these, you know, George Floyd kind of inspired protests, but really in the end, I, I don't, I can't think of anywhere where that really led to any sort of like people saying, you know, reduced role for the police. I don't think that's happened anywhere. And partly in law, that's out of public safety, which is understandable. Um, but you're, you're, we often then, if we're, if we give more money to the police, but social services does not get more, you often are asking the police to do work that they, A, maybe aren't qualified to do. And B, I, I would argue, and I've sort of seen it, I don't think they want to do all the time either. So mm -hmm. I think there is sort of that kind of um, that kind of conflict there that I think governments have to sort of, I don't know, some recognize if we're going to if you want the police funding to stay steady. OK, but there has to be a way of getting enough support to social services. Yeah, I hear that uh, police mm -hmm. budgets are huge. Yeah. Um, and they are often responding to, you know, an encampment uh, from an enforcement standpoint, but not from a mm. social standpoint. And and sometimes those two conflict. Um, I don't know the answer, to be yeah, honest. No, I'm not I saying know. that it's very difficult to have an answer, but I'm just saying that's kind of been the case where uh, what we've ended up with from the last few years. And uh, like you've said with other things, uh, I think uh, COVID definitely has intensified a lot of these issues as well. Um, I, and I think I do think what is emerging is greater accountability. And I mm -hmm. think that's emerging across systems, like from a financial investment standpoint, more and more we're seeing granting programs or funding programs that require robust data to support mm -hmm. ongoing work or even just to, to support ongoing funding. So there's that. That's a greater accountability. I think that we need greater accountability in our justice system. Um, and if if the Black Lives Matters protests uh, have done anything, I think it's 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 added a lens of of how do we hold the big systems, big colonial racist systems, um, accountable for their actions and their work, and. I think that's like, I would love to see budget shift. It's so hard to shift budgets, mm -hmm. but I think we can shift accountability expectations. Right. Yeah. Um, and just uh, with, as you've said, fentanyl is really a, a synthetic production and really agriculturally produced drugs. If not gone, they're kind of rare now. Um, do you like, does that really kind of make it really difficult for in a in a big picture way to always sort of I'm not talking about law enforcement, but even talking like proper care and having the right kind of um way of keeping people safe. It's always like very difficult to stay on top of this because who knows what can be produced in the lab. Is that sort of a yeah. fair position to be? Like you always sort of have to be in a reactive position. 
Yep. We're very reactive. I think like one of the things that we look forward to is having some drug testing, more robust drug testing um, processes here. We have uh, um, a mass spectrometer, which allows us to test on site what's in a substance helps to inform how to use your drug. I don't think we're in a space where if someone tested their substance and they were like, oh, there's a lot of benzodiazepine in that. I'm not going to use that. Like, I don't think that's the response we will get often, but it will inform how to use more safely. It will inform when something unexpected is in your supply. Um, so I, I like, we need to get to a place where we can in real time, understand what's in the supply. Um, and I, I hope that that can make a difference. Um, it certainly will inform practices. Like we are always looking at the Toronto drug, drug testing, um, uh, uh, reports to see what's in the Toronto supply and learn whatever we can about uh, uh, something that's emerging so that we can give our service users and our community as much information as possible of what may be in the supply. If you see this response, this might be it. So here's some harm reduction techniques about that. So I, I do think that that's the way you can be a bit more agile in, in your response. Um, but you're right, it's hard to to stay on top of things, even the color of drugs that's pretty popular right now, like pink, blue, rainbow, mm-hmm. uh, like it changes yes. all the time. So yes. it, it's hard to know uh, what's most toxic. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it must be a little heartbreaking. I've heard someone else say this, like uh, for um, ever, your harm reduction workers, or whatever, at the end of the day, when you have people asking about like housing or where can I go or that sort of thing. Um, yeah. I've, I've heard that you've come, you come across that a bit with some of your clients. And, yeah. Uh, you know, recently I spoke at a council meeting, they had an emergency meeting about homelessness and I was, um, while I was speaking, uh, you know, I'm at the CTS, I'm mm. talking about what the reality is of outdoor living, et cetera. And I leave my office and there's five or six people that have no solution for that night. So we're calling shelter where uh, there are no beds available. We're mm. uh, looking for ways that they can stay safe and warm outdoors. It was pouring rain, you know, so it was that was poignant for me. Um, because we're talking, we're advocating at the city council about a winter response. Um, but that's like, um, a Zoom meeting with everyone comfortable in their homes, whereas the reality for folks who are living and working downtown is that there there is need every day that's not being met. And you're right, it's hard to stay hopeful. Uh, it's hard to not get burnt out. It's hard to mm-hmm. um, to uh, not feel overwhelmed by the the amount of need. Right, and you know our shelter systems are not low barrier, really. There's a lot of people I'm sure you've come across or say I'm not allowed at whatever overflow or Brockhouse or whatever. Yeah. 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 And you know what? Low barrier shelter, truly low barrier shelter is really difficult to to operate. Mm -hmm. Um, So there's some shining examples, uh, of course, Um, but it requires a lot of policy change. So I would hope that from a municipal service manager standpoint, in terms of the people who hold the contracts, as well as shelter owners and operators, like that it's an ongoing development towards lower barriers on an ongoing basis, because I I do think we see that played out uh, at our doorstep. Right. And actually, now that you've mentioned it, I, I actually remember you because I did listen in on that meeting, uh, the emergency meeting, Diane Tyrion called. Uh, I, I think it was you who said that you were telling the stories you just said there. So, yeah, I thought that was quite, um, quite brave of you to be saying that. And it was uh, I think it definitely came came from the heart. So that's very good. It's very refreshing to hear after hearing council not say much for about an hour there so yeah um so well thank you very much that's very um that that all is very helpful i was just going to end a bit on a personal note totally off topic but uh this is just for my own information's sake i believe you're involved with the ultimate league in in peterborough for ultimate frisbee which is a game i don't think i totally understand so i'm just going to ask you the simple question what draws you to this sport Oh boy. I mean, the people in a lot of ways, I love that it's a self-refereed sport. So there's a a certain amount of accountability for each athlete. Mm -hmm. Um, And I have had the privilege of playing 
uh, across Canada and internationally. So I've met some of the most incredible socially minded people. Um, I think that you could wish to meet in your lifetime. So I certainly play because uh, there's people who, you know, want to pass on something beautiful. And for them, that that is their sport. And uh, it's a pretty unique community to be involved in. Wow. Okay. That was that was yeah, that till recently to me, till I came across that was a bit of a head and gym for me. I mean, I kind of know what <laughs> Ultimate Frisbee is, but I don't think I've ever seen it played or anything such. So yes. Al, you should come out and play. It's tons right. of fun. Okay. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you very much for that. I hope I didn't take up too much of your time in the day there, but uh I'll Yeah, uh, no, try. thanks for your time, Tim. Yes. Yeah,